And we said that the theme of Mark's gospel was to present Jesus as the servant, the servant king. Mark's is the quickest of the four gospels in the way it moves along because Mark, Mark wants to present as quickly as possible Jesus, the servant king, and the audience he seems to be directing his gospel to are the Romans for a lot of reasons which we've already covered. So Mark begins not by giving us the details of Jesus' early life, as, as important as they were, he wants to get right into the gospel. And so after introducing us to the servant king, Jesus, in the first 13 verses, he moves right into then the works of Jesus. He just fires them out one after another. You won't find any long discourses in Mark's gospel, as in Matthew and Luke and even John. You won't you'll find very few parables because Mark isn't so concerned with what Jesus said as what he did. And of course, that would be in keeping in line with a servant. It's not important what a servant says, it's important what he does. And so he wants to show Jesus in this light. And so we got as far as uh, verse 28 last week, but let's kind of back up to verse 21 because this is all one day now we're going to cover. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, they've just been to church. They've just left the synagogue. It's the same day. They're in Capernaum, and as we said last time, Capernaum was the town that Jesus made his home in after he grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, but he made his home in Capernaum. There's other scriptures that indicate that, but it was also the home of Peter and Andrew. So, uh, they're all living now up in Capernaum. It's the Sabbath day. They've just been to the synagogue. And they come into the house, and Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. And they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her, and she served them. One commentator said, Notice that they brought Jesus home from church and let him bless the family. I think that's a good point. Uh, they didn't just leave him in church. I think sometimes we tend to leave Jesus in church, right? We come back and to our families and we're all of a sudden, you know, we're not letting him come and bless our family. Uh, bring Jesus home from church, will you? I know he appreciates that because he wants to be a part of every area of your life. But... Here was Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick with a fever. And Jesus walked over. He touched her. And he healed her. And immediately she got up and served 
him and all of them. Again, interesting and important point. Jesus touches our lives. He heals us for us to do what then? To turn around and serve him. And that's important. Now at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered at the door. Now, the Jewish day went from sundown to sundown, so the Sabbath is now over with. It ended at sundown. And now the people start coming because the Sabbath is over. Uh, they can move out of the houses. Sabbath, of course, was a day of rest. They could only go two-thirds of a mile total the whole day, could do no work. And now the Sabbath has ended, and they hear Jesus is in, in town, so they actually they mob the house of Simon Peter and they just throng Jesus uh, it's evening time and they brought to him all those who were sick and those who were demon possessed and the whole city was gathered together at the door then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons he did not allow them the demons to speak because they knew him and this really finishes a very busy ministry day now I want you to understand that if we look back in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says this concerning this time. In Matthew chapter 8, this is the same incident we've just read. Matthew records it. And after Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, verse 16, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were, who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses now I bring that out because many people in the charismatic movement will look at Jesus Christ and use his life as a, an illustration of how that God wants to touch and heal everybody we come in contact with even as Jesus did He's the example, and if we should follow his example. Look, everyone he came in contact with, he healed, which wasn't true. Uh, there were a lot of people he didn't heal that he came in contact with. Uh, John 5, he comes to the pool of Bethesda. There's a whole bunch of people laying around there. He only heals one lame guy and moves on. So he didn't heal everybody he came in contact with. He healed those that the Father had preordained that he heal. But I want you to turn to Ezekiel or uh, Isaiah chapter 53 because I want to read to you what Matthew just quotes from in Isaiah 53 it's talking of course about Jesus in verse 3 he says it says he is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him verse 4 is the one that Matthew quotes surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And those in the faith movement, and the, those who believe in um, divine healing, which is applied to every person, in other words, they believe that God has ordained that nobody be sick. If you're sick, it's something of the devil. It's a lack of faith. Uh, it's not from God because Jesus, it says, bore our sicknesses and so on and so forth. In other words, it should, by his stripes, we were healed. So it means that, you know, when he died on the cross, it, it opened the way for us to enjoy perfect health and so on. And they'll quote 
from Isaiah, but Matthew quotes from Isaiah, doesn't he? When Jesus was healing and all. And what does he say in verse 8? As he quotes from Isaiah, that very passage that the faith movement often quotes from to confirm the fact that we're supposed to always be healed because of what Jesus did in the cross. It says here, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That's true. That's what Jesus did. But back up a little bit. It says, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. When Jesus Christ walked on the earth, he did a lot of things. He fulfilled a lot of scriptures. And when he healed people that he came in contact with, he was fulfilling Isaiah 53, that it might be fulfilled. That scripture was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't still heal. I'm just saying that Jesus' ministry was unique. He came in contact with a lot of sick people and healed most of them, all that he wanted to, of course. Uh, but the idea is he fulfilled that scripture in his ministry. So you can't use that as kind of a carte blanche, you might say, that, hey, because of what it says here in Isaiah, every one of us can enjoy uh, perfect health because of what Jesus did. No, Jesus fulfilled that in his ministry. So you have to understand that. Jesus is our example, obviously, in so many ways. But let's not forget one thing. The theologians also teach what's called the uniqueness of Christ. In the sense that, yes, he was the prototype in a sense. He was the one who went before us as an example of how we should live and walk and all. And yet there are some things about Jesus Christ that we'll never duplicate. Because he was unique in the fact that he alone was the God-man. He alone was God incarnate. Uh, we can't look at Jesus' life and say, well, if Jesus did it, we can do it. Sometimes that's true, but not always. Don't forget a lot of the things he did, the healings, the, the miracles, the casting out of demons, was evidence of his Messiahship. Remember when John was imprisoned and he began to doubt if Jesus was really the Messiah? In fact, he sent disciples to Christ one day and said, look, are you really the Messiah or should we look for another? And what did Jesus do? He said to John's disciples, look, you go back and tell John. The deaf receive their hearing. The blind are made to see. The lame are made to walk. Demons are cast out. The poor of the gospel preach to them. What was he doing? He was saying, John, don't doubt because I'm doing all the works the Messiah was supposed to do. Pointing to his ministry of deliverance and healing and miracles as evidence of the fact that he was the Messiah. So yes, he told his church that we would heal the sick, cast out demons and so on but not on the same level that he did, because he, of course, was unique. Now, they've just experienced, or Jesus has just experienced, a very full, very busy ministry day. I mean, it's gone from morning until late at night. He's been in the synagogue teaching. He's been healing, uh, ministering. You think that maybe he'd like to sleep in the next day to get a little bit refreshed. Well, verse 35 goes on to say, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. It seems that Jesus didn't draw his strength from sleep as much as he drew his strength from prayer and communion with his Father. Uh, I believe that this was the pattern of Jesus' life also. I believe that 
It was the pattern of his life where we see him rising up early, a long while before daybreak to go off and pray. I believe he was doing that, and I believe he did that every day of his life to receive instructions from his father for the day, directions. I believe that Jesus Christ was so in touch with his father, he never did anything but what his father directed him to do, which meant he started every day in prayer and communion. And it was that communion with his father that seemed to refresh him. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and so on. I believe that that's what charged him up for the day. Uh, don't forget, Jesus Christ had a mission to fulfill that was going to impact not only humanity, but I think all the universe, really. And Satan was going to attack him and did attack him like nobody else has ever been attacked. Jesus Christ needed to be in communion with his Father constantly. And it was a pattern of his life. So many times we read about him staying up all night to pray, rising up early a long time before daybreak to pray. That was the pattern of his life, something he did constantly. And I'll tell you, I, I know of no more powerful proof that we need to pray than to point out that Jesus prayed constantly and consistently. Um, if he needed to pray as the Son of God, how much do we need to pray consistently? How much do we need to be in communion with our Father if we're going to be directed into areas of service and ministry? What else can you say? I think that says it all. If Jesus needed to pray being the Son of God, I tell you what, I certainly need to pray because I know that I need the strength and the direction to be and to do what God has called me to do. Now, prayer is such an incredible thing. You know, I think that we have all heard so many teachings on prayer, and yet so often we take it so for granted. Um, it has truly been said that no great work of God has ever been accomplished apart from prayer. No great work of God, and I really believe that, has ever been accomplished apart from prayer. Uh, a great prayer warrior, S.D. Gordon, said one time years ago, he said, prayer is striking the winning blow. Service is just simply picking up the results. I think that's very true. I think that prayer is really where the battle is won. Service is then just gathering in the spoil uh, because that's, prayer is really what it's, where it's at. I think prayer is the deciding factor in our fight against Satan. Uh, I've heard the illustration this way that say you're walking down a dark street one night and suddenly you hear footsteps behind you and you begin to kind of pick up the pace and suddenly you hear the footsteps behind you start moving faster you turn around and suddenly you're attacked by somebody it's dark you're wrestling the guys your size, your strength, I mean, it's kind of like a, a, an even match, we'll say. You're both wrestling with each other, and suddenly, in the moonlight, you see a, a flash of a, of a reflection. You realize this guy has just pulled out a knife. Suddenly now, the whole battle is focused for control of the knife, because that is going to decide who's going to be victorious. See, whoever has the knife is the one that's going to have the victory. So everything now becomes focused on the knife. I really believe that that's what prayer is all about. I really believe that, and I'm not trying to say that Satan and us are evenly matched. I'm just saying that prayer is the deciding factor. That's why Satan tries to wrestle prayer away from us at all costs. He'll let us do anything but pray. He would rather we do anything but pray, even come here and study the Word of God. As much as we enjoy 
studying the Word of God. Satan would rather us study the Word of God if he can keep us from prayer. And how many of us find it easier to study the Word of God than to pray? You ever think about that? Now, I'm not saying that that's always easy either. Because if he can get you off your knees in prayer, the next thing I believe he tells his demons to do is try keep them out of the Word. But there are some Christians he knows he's not going to keep out of the Word. He'll give you that. Because knowledge, all the knowledge you acquire with regard to the Word of God is great, but it's meaningless if you don't put it into operation through prayer. So if he can just, you know, let's just study the Word all the time, great. Because the power comes when you get on your knees and begin to pray. He knows that's where the battle is won. And, you know, in a sense, we've got to be careful because knowledge can puff up. Uh, even Bible study can in some ways appeal to our flesh. Why? Because we're learning. And as we're learning, we're able to be better teachers, better, you know, and people come to us maybe with their questions, and, and that gratifies in some way my ego to know that, hey, I've learned so much that people now look to me as somebody who knows the Word and can answer questions. And so if you allow it, knowledge can puff up, see? And that's what Paul said. But prayer is the most unselfish, sacrificial thing you can do. You get nothing, the flesh gets nothing back from prayer. So often it's done just in private between you and the Lord. So it's a totally selfless act because there's nobody watching, there's nobody that, that can uh, will uh, applaud or uh, you get recognition from other people. It's a very unselfish thing. And that's why, and of course, it's the most powerful thing you can do as a Christian. And that's why Satan wants to keep us off our knees. It is really where the battle is won. And so Jesus spent so much of his time on his knees praying. In fact, it says in Simon, and those who were with him searched for him. Interesting, he would leave them and go off and pray. It wasn't something he drew a lot of attention to. Oftentimes, he just slipped away quietly to pray. And suddenly the disciples were, well, where, where's Jesus at? Oh, I don't know. He, he must be somewhere praying. And they would go out looking for him. And when they found him, see, this is interesting to me because... Jesus knew the importance of prayer. He knew how important it was that his disciples learn to pray. And yet, if I had been the Lord, the first thing I would have done would have been to gather them all together and say, look, I can't stress to you all enough the importance of prayer. Therefore, let me teach you how to pray, and then I'm going to really expect you to be consistent and disciplined in your prayer life. Did Jesus do that? No. What did he do? He just went ahead and prayed. And when the disciples saw the communion that he had with his father, how he, there must have been something visible about his countenance when he came back from communing with his father. His face must have radiated a kind of a peace and a joy. His life never seemed to reflect any turmoil, even though they themselves were often anxious and worried about so many things. He was always very calm. You know, it was never a panic button. No matter what happened, storm at sea, tax collectors telling you, you got to come up with the dough right now or else we're going to throw you in jail. Jesus was very calm. And they picked up on this, the serenity and the power that he walked in, and they somehow attributed it to prayer and this was the wisdom of the master teacher. 
because he taught not always by words. He first taught by example. He prayed so much that at one point they actually came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now that's beautiful. I mean, look what he did. He lived it. You know, there is something very awesome about living your Christian witness to the point where people become, you're contagious in a sense. People are catching your desire to be with God. That's to, to me is the ultimate uh, example of what Christianity is all about. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Most things in the Christian life are caught, not taught. Jesus Christ was contagious spiritually because he had such an intimate walk with his father. His disciples wanted to be around him all the time and they wanted to imitate what he had. And so prayer was a very important part of that. I'll tell you what, we're living in a very stressful, a very anxious time in our nation's history. A lot of people are finding it very difficult to cope with the pressures of life. And many of them are not coping. They're turning to alcohol. They're turning to drugs. They're committing suicide. Because your life cannot sustain. Your life cannot sustain the outward pressures if there's not an inward strength to support it all. You've heard of the old sinkhole syndrome? A sinkhole is some kind of an underground stream or even a water main sometimes that breaks underground and begins to erode the ground underneath the, the, the surface of the earth. It just begins to, until finally what's on top is no, can no longer be supported by the earth beneath because it's all been washed away to the point it just kind of caves in. You've seen them on maybe TV or in, in the newspapers, these big sinkholes that swallow like maybe a city block and it's got cars and buses in there and everything else just gets kind of swallowed in. It's because the ground underneath could no longer support the pressure of what was above it. Prayer is the spiritual infrastructure of a Christian. It's through prayer that we build strength within to sustain the outward pressures that are pressing in on every one of us. And I'll tell you what, if you're a Christian who's not in prayer, and believe me, when I tell you that I'd like to tell you that I was more of a prayer warrior than I, I'm ashamed at really my lack of prayer. And it's something that I pray, Lord, help me to pray more. Because I realize whenever I start getting stressed or anxious about things, it's because I haven't taken time to be with the Lord. I know that. You know, my burden is easy, Jesus said. My yoke is light. If you've got burdens that are too heavy to bear, it's because either you've taken things on yourself that God hasn't given you, or you're just not spending time with the Lord to build that inner strength that will support the weight of the pressures of life. So prayer, very important. Jesus knew the importance of it, yet he didn't press it. He didn't push for him to do it. He lived it, and they picked up on it, and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's really how they learned to be Christians, through Jesus' example. Something else here, though, and this really applies mostly, I think, to people in ministry, but I think it does apply to everyone here. It says, when they found him, what do they say to him? Everyone is looking for you. Now, I can appreciate that being in ministry because sometimes that's exactly how you feel. Everyone is looking for you. Everyone needs to talk to you. 
Uh, sometimes I'll call my secretary after I've been out doing some errand or running around doing something, and I got maybe like 15 phone calls of different people I've got to talk to. Everybody is looking for you, see? Jesus was under an incredible amount of public pressure. He had just finished a very intense day of ministry in Capernaum, teaching, ministering, healing, casting out demons, far into the night. Things were happening, weren't they? The whole town had gathered by Simon Peter's house. I mean, think about it. I mean, how prone we are today with numbers to, to kind of fall into the numbers thing. Oh, but things are happening here. Why are they happening? Well, people are coming. Look at the numbers. There was a lot of people that had come to hear Jesus and to, to be healed by him. What does he do? He refuses to submit to the tyranny of the urgent. The tyranny of the urgent how that some people, everything is urgent, and they will absolutely just control you with not necessarily bad things, but just things that, you know, if you let people, they will control your life to the point where you'll have no time for the Lord, for anything else. So what did Jesus do? He gets up early that morning, and he spends time in prayer. And apparently his father says, look, move on to the next city. Now, when the disciples came to him, they were, listen to what they had to say. Everyone is looking for you. What were they doing? They were looking at the crowds. They wanted to please the crowds. The people want you. Well, but what does the Father want? And so often, you see, this is why it's important to be in constant communion with God. I don't care if you're in ministry or just as a Christian with your everyday life, you can't walk by sight and expect to always be led by God. Because sometimes what looks like where you should be isn't where God wants you to be. See, hey, things were happening in Capernaum. Why would we leave this town, Lord? The crowds are here. Why would we go anywhere else? We've got the people. We've got the audience. But the Father said, but I want you somewhere else. See, you, you wouldn't know that unless you were in communion with your father. Philip, remember, went down to Samaria. Big revival broke out. Miracles being wrought. Things happening. The city was filled with joy. It was really happening in Samaria. People were coming from miles around. His ministry was growing by leaps and bounds. What did the Lord tell him to do? Go down to Gaza. Gaza means desert. Leave town and go down to the desert, a deserted place. The human mind says, why? What's down there? The people are here, Lord. The Lord says, there's a guy coming down there that I want to touch. I want you down there. See, he wouldn't have known that if he wasn't in touch with the Spirit of God. That's why prayer, again, is so important. If you're not in touch with the Lord through prayer, you're going to miss it oftentimes because we are prone then to make decisions based on our, our human perception of things. This goes with anything. I don't care if it's uh, choosing a job or what? Oh, but this one pays the most money. See, what am I doing? I'm making decisions based on outward things. Uh, this must be the one God wants. It pays the most. Well, how do you know? Have you prayed about it? Well, I don't have to. You better. You better. Because that one is probably not the one God wants you to have. If my experience in ministry have been right, uh, so often what seems to look like it comes from God is so often from the devil. And you got to really pray. So he wasn't about to be controlled by people. 
And here's something else very important. Listen to how he responds to them. He said, verse 39, or excuse me, verse 38, but he said to them, hey, Lord, everyone's looking for you. The crowds are already outside. They're waiting to hear from you. Here's what Jesus said. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Jesus said, look, the people are coming because I've just worked many miracles. I've just healed many sick. I've just cast out many demons. Now, Jesus was concerned about people's physical condition. I'm not trying to say the Lord was not concerned. He was about people's physical well-being. He fed the hungry numerous times. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He was concerned about the physical. But was that his whole ministry? I mean, was that what his ministry was all about? Was he the greatest faith healer and deliverer that has ever lived? Yes. But was that his whole ministry? No. He only healed, cast out demons, and so on, to serve as a platform from which he might preach the gospel. See, that's really why he came. Verse 38, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. He didn't come forth to heal and cast out demons and do all the things that were good and needed. He came forth to preach the gospel. Later on, he enters Capernaum again in chapter 2. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days and it was it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them and not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. What else is there? Really, what else is there but to preach the word of God? As exciting and as good as miracles and healings and deliverances can be, they don't affect people for eternity. They only affect and impact the temporal. And Jesus Christ was here to impact the eternal. And the word of God, the gospel, is what impacts and changes somebody for eternity. Jesus Christ was preaching the word. And of course, to get people's attention, and because he was concerned about physical needs, he would heal, he would cast out demons, he would feed them. But he never wanted them to live on that level. Remember when he fed the 5,000? He got into a boat, went across to the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And they, in the morning they woke up, ran around, or got into boats and came across the sea and found him. And they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And what did Jesus say to them? He knew their heart. He knew they were only there to get breakfast. I mean, they had gotten dinner the night before. They were hungry. They thought, this is great. We'll never have to work again. All we'll do is follow this guy around, watch him do miracles, and he'll feed us every day. And Jesus said, look, you only seek me because you ate the loaves and were full. He said, don't seek after that bread that perishes, but seek after the bread that I give that leads to everlasting life. He was talking about the greatest need they had, which was spiritual, not physical. And he would use the physical to act as a platform from which to preach to them about their greatest needs. And so he said, look, for this purpose I have come, which is to preach the good news, to teach them 
the Word of God, which is so very important. Uh, today, I'm sorry to say, the people in the church are teaching experiences. They're preaching experiences and all. Uh, remember when Paul was in Troas, Acts 20? says on the Sabbath day, Paul got up and preached the sermon. I love this. is one of my favorite passages. And he preached till midnight, it says. Okay? All day. And there was a young guy named Eutychus who was sitting on the window. You know, the window ledge. Three floors up they were. And it says it was around midnight and there was a lot of lamps in the upper room there. And maybe the air had gotten kind of stale and the lamps were kind of eating up the oxygen. So he kind of, he falls asleep and he falls out the window three floors and dies well Paul runs down there and takes him in his arms and says hey don't worry about it he's okay and revives him I mean he the guy he resurrects the guy now in some church services that would have been it man that would have been the church service right there okay Paul it's almost like an incidental thing he runs down there resurrects the guy from the dead brings him back up sits him back in the window and preaches till daybreak I mean, it was like that wasn't even the issue. The word was the issue. The guy fell out and died. All right, we'll fix that. Go, <laughs> go ahead, sit back over there because we're going to preach the word now some more. See, that was the, the most important thing to Paul because that's really where the life came from. See, the spiritual life. Physical life, it's great. You need it to have spiritual life. But it's not the whole thing. And so he was preaching in their synagogues. He moves on to another town, and he's um, preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Third time, Mark says that Jesus cast out demons. Now, understand this. Mark is not only presenting to us Jesus as the servant. He's also presenting Jesus as the Son of God, which is crucial to the gospel message. He is not just another good teacher. He is the Son of God. And to prove he's the Son of God, he is going to show us through his acts of service, he has the power over demons. He has the power over disease, as we're going to see. He has the power over nature to calm storms. See, Mark wants us to see this unique individual called Jesus, who is a king, but he's not like any king that's ever come down the pike. He's a servant king. See? In fact... The greatest thing that Mark tells us about Jesus is that he went around doing good and healing people and ministering and feeding and feeding spiritually as well as physically. And Jesus said, look, you see what I've done. The greatest among you is going to be a servant, not a Lord. And so Mark is teaching us about the character of Jesus Christ through his acts of service. Now, verse 40 says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. You have to understand that leprosy was the most horrible, hideous, loathsome disease in the world at that time. There was not only physical horrors attached to the disease, but incredible social stigmas as well. 
In fact, as soon as a man or a woman came down with leprosy, they were instantly, as soon as the priest confirmed it was leprosy, they were instantly cut off from, the, from fellowship and worship of God. They could no longer approach God. And they were cut off from everyone else socially because they had to live outside the city, outside the walls of the city. In fact, as soon as somebody came down with leprosy, they were the living dead. It was only a matter of time, and everyone that saw them, uh, that came near the leper, was supposed to stand off and yell, unclean, unclean. So nobody would approach him. He was waiting to die. He was like the living dead. In fact, uh, he was to mourn over his condition as one mourned over somebody who had died. Because for all intents and purposes, he had. He was the walking dead, basically. And you have to put yourself for a second into this guy's shoes. Here he is with a totally incurable disease. Leprosy was incurable. There was no hope for a leper. It was a totally incurable disease. He could not have communion with God. He was cut off from his God. He was cut off from society and his family. His family couldn't even touch him. I mean, all they could do was look at him from afar. They dared not approach him. So he was totally isolated, alone, uh, feeling abandoned. Uh, he was waiting to... You, you can imagine how a leper must have felt. Uh, incredibly alone and isolated. No one to go through this horrible crisis with him. I mean, he was just waiting to die. Now, somewhere along the line, this man had heard about Jesus Christ. And he had heard that Jesus was healing people and casting out demons. Somewhere along the line, he came to believe that Jesus Christ could cleanse him of his leprosy. We don't know where it happened. We just know that when he comes to Jesus Christ, he said to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You notice that? He never doubted the Lord's power. It was his willingness, see, he doubted. After all, for Jesus to heal Peter's mother-in-law's fever, to cast out demons, to make the deaf hear and the lame walk and the dumb to speak is one thing, but I'm a leper. I'm a leper. I mean, no one comes near me. Leprosy was such was a repulsive, horrible thing. No one, uh, you were just like totally cut off and ostracized from society. Maybe Jesus wouldn't want to heal me. I mean, this disease is so loathsome and so disgusting. I don't know if he's willing. And so he approaches Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Does something reach out, strike you off the page when you read that? What is it? Jesus touched him. See, nobody was allowed to touch a leper. Nobody dared touch a leper except Jesus. This man had been cut off from his family. Those that loved him most couldn't touch him. But Jesus had compassion and walked over and touched him and cleansed him. Notice, 
He cleansed him. Nowhere in the scriptures did Jesus ever heal a leper. He always cleansed the leper. Why? Because leprosy was a type of sin. See? Of all the diseases the Bible talks about, leprosy is the one disease that the Bible likens to sin. If you do a study on leprosy, you'll see that it so very much parallels, in a physical way, the effects that sin has on our lives spiritually. First of all, a person who was afflicted with leprosy, one of the first things that would happen when leprosy began to invade the body, it usually started at the outward extremities, the hands, the fingers, the toes, uh, the head would work its way then inward. And the first thing it did was to deaden the nerve endings. It would kill the nerve endings so that a person would become totally, the leper would become totally insensitive to things. He could very easily put his hand down on a hot stove and not feel a thing and wouldn't even know it was hot until he started to smell the flesh burning. It rendered his, him completely insensitive, numb to what was going on around him, just like sin does. The Bible says that sin has a way of callousing us. It has a way of searing our conscience so that we are become insensitive to uh, the effects of sin in our lives. Sin also, like leprosy, decays. And leprosy did. It decayed. It would destroy the, the, the fingers, the toes. It would work its way in, and as it did, it would so rotten, destroy the tissue that gangrene would often set in, and they would just constantly just either keep cutting larger parts of your body off as the gangrene set in, or it would just putrefy and decay and basically drop off. And so the leper was being eaten away by sin, a dead man really, he was physically really waiting to die. He was a, a, the walking dead. And that's interesting because Paul says that before we knew Jesus Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins, totally insensitive to how sin was destroying our lives. So leprosy becomes an apt description of sin. Now, if we look at it that way, we can see a whole new light that this story is teaching us, a whole new way of looking at this. Jesus Christ healed lepers. Leprosy was incurable. Interesting though, it says in Leviticus chapter 14, as Moses is giving the law, he says, this is the law concerning the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now right there you have to stop and say, wait a minute. Leprosy was incurable. That's true. But in the law, God made provision for a miracle, for a work of grace. And leprosy, again, is a type of sin. And a person that has been stricken with sin, and we all have been, is incurable by human standards. There's nothing we can do to cure or to cleanse ourselves from the effects of sin. Nothing. It's incurable. There's no hope in and of ourselves, right? And yet, God made provision for a miracle, a work of grace in all of our lives, Jesus Christ. And so when this man came to Jesus, said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. See, he didn't realize the Lord's always willing. The Lord's always willing to cleanse us of our sins. It's just that, are we willing? Sometimes people who are, have sinned so much all their lives, they've lived such a horrible life. They hear about Jesus Christ, and they approach him in a way like this leper did. I know you can... Forgive me of my sins and cleanse me, but are you willing? I've done so many horrible things, see? 
They're not sure. And the response is always the same. Jesus always wraps his arm around them in compassion and says, I am willing. Be cleansed. He never turns any spiritual leper away who comes to him wanting to be cleansed of their sin. And so Jesus touches him, says, I am willing. Be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. See, we're not healed of our sin. We're cleansed of our sin. See, that's why leprosy is never talked about in terms of being healed from it. You're always cleansed from it because, again, it illustrates sin. Now, Jesus strictly warned him, though, and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He was talking about Leviticus 14. Leviticus 14 says if somebody is cleansed of their leprosy, which was a total work of God, if they were, they had to bring certain things to the priest. They had to show themselves to the priest to verify they were cleansed of their leprosy. They would offer, offer two turtle doves. And there was a whole process which again pointed to Jesus Christ. But they would have to show themselves to the priest. That was what the law said. So Jesus said, look, don't tell anybody else, but keep the law. Go show yourself to the priest and offer the things that Moses told you to offer in the day of your cleansing as a leper. And what did he do? Well, he obeyed the Lord like most of us do. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but, out, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Now, we look at this guy and we say, oh, geez, you know, couldn't obey the Lord, could he? You know, had to open his big mouth. Well, you know what? Before we get too hard on this guy, Jesus told him to be quiet. He went around telling everybody. Jesus tells us to tell everybody, and we so often are quiet. So I don't think we've come too much, we're too much different than this guy. Let me say something, though, in his defense. I'm not defending his disobedience, but you know what? I can understand it. I can understand it. It's very difficult to keep quiet when God has really touched your life and has done a work of grace in your life, isn't it? To me, that is the most natural form of evangelism that I can think of. It's the most natural thing in the world to go to somebody and say, let me just tell you what Jesus has done for me. It's like the old Don Francisco song, gotta tell somebody, gotta tell somebody what Jesus has done for me. And that's what this guy, the Lord had touched him. He had worked a miracle in his life. He had done something for him nobody else could have done. He worked a miracle of cleansing. And he wanted to tell everybody what Jesus had done for him. To me, that's the best kind of evangelism there is. It's so natural. Takes away all the, I think, the fear of, you know, having to go and pick out a night where we're going to hit the streets and go door to door and share the four spiritual laws and you're shaking in your boots because, after all, it's kind of unnatural and you're scared. Hey, forget about that. Just go everywhere and just tell people what Jesus has done for you. Now, if you are in a position right now in your spiritual life where you, you know, kind of bow your head in shame and say, well, to tell you the truth, he hasn't been doing much in my life lately. Hey, then get back into communion. Get back into communion. And when you do, and the Lord begins to work in your life on a daily basis, you'll be able to share and share naturally what Jesus Christ uh, is doing in your life. Jesus didn't say, go out and witness. He said, you are my witnesses. A witness is somebody that testifies of what they've seen. We are his witnesses. We testify. 
to what Jesus, we have seen Jesus do in our own lives. That's the best testimony there is, you know. And so the word began to get out. And um, because of it, Jesus was restricted. And that's really what he didn't want. See, the practical side to this was that Jesus knew the more miracle mania began to spread, the more the thrill seekers would come and those that were just looking to see the miracles. And he knew that that would greatly restrict his primary ministry, which would be to preach the word, which it did. I'm sorry to say today so oftentimes that is the primary ministry, the miracles and all the hype. And Jesus knew that's not why he came. That's not what a church should be built on. It should be built on the teaching of the Word of God. And once you're taught the Word of God and the Spirit is working through the Word of God, signs and wonders will follow. I, hey, I'm open to signs and wonders. I'm open to healings and miracles and deliverances. I welcome them. But I'm not going to build our church on them. We're going to build our church on the Word of God. Because to Jesus, that was the most important thing. That's why he came. And the miracles and the healings and everything else uh, was to get people's attention and, yes, to meet some physical needs, but then to use it as a platform to minister to them on the level of their greatest need, which is really what we're going to see in the next story. It says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house, Immediately, now this, many believe this was Simon Peter's house they were in. Immediately, and there's that word that Mark loves so much, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. The house is just packed. I imagine they're out the door, they're in the courtyard, they're everywhere. Of course, listening through the windows and any openings that they could listen by to hear Jesus teach. The house is just packed, and he preached the word to them. Again, underline that. You know, that was the really what he came to do. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Now, I want you to see this in your mind. The place is packed. There's people everywhere. Outside, they, these four guys come carrying this guy who was paralyzed. They got him in some kind of a stretcher or whatever, and they want to bring him to Jesus, but the place is just packed. There's no way they're going to get through the crowd to where Jesus was. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, and I'm sure that if this was Simon Peter's house, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure he appreciated that, but and understand something that in Israel, many times the houses were built with a stairway that led up to the roof because the roof was functional. It was a patio. Oftentimes they would plant a grass up there, which did serve to keep the water out, but also made it a nice kind of a garden, kind of a patio thing. So uh, it wasn't a big thing to open up the roof. It was either thatched uh, grass or something, and they would then pull up the... the um, the pieces of wood that, you know, it was thatched to. It wasn't that big a deal, and so they did that. They let down, they, when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I, uh, I like this because I see in this four guys, and I think that these guys could very well parallel or illustrate or uh, symbolize four Christians, four believers. 
who have a friend that's paralyzed. And again, looking at this in this kind of a spiritual way, which the Lord does want us to do also. Here's a guy who was paralyzed, okay, which meant he was incapacitated. He could do nothing to help himself. He represents, I think, a person who is unsaved that has been befriended by four Christians. And they want with all their heart to bring their friend, unsaved and paralyzed, and lay him before Jesus. They want to bring him to a place where he can hear Jesus' words. Now, initially, they can't. The crowd is too much. They can't get through. How many of us would have given up at that point? Think about it. How many of us, the Lord lays on our hearts to call our unsaved friend on the phone and invite him or her to church where they can hear the words of Jesus? We call. Line is busy, so we say, well, must not be God's will. Line's busy, and obviously it's not God's will. How easily do we give up? How easily? I think that's one of the lessons God is trying to teach us through this story. These guys did not give up. They did what they had to do until they got their friend and they were able to lay him at Jesus' feet where he could hear the words of Christ. I mean, they did what they had. They didn't give up until they had accomplished their mission. Don't give up until you accomplish your mission. Hey, your faith doesn't save anybody. But so oftentimes your faith might open the way for somebody to get into church because you refuse to give up until you do what it takes to get that person somewhere where they can hear the words of Jesus. And from that point, it's up to them. I mean, you know, you can't take him any farther. But Jesus appreciated these four guys. It says here in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. What does James say about faith being something that is oftentimes manifested in visible ways? They just, just didn't stay home and pray about it, quote unquote, like we oftentimes fall. Well, I'm praying about it. Great. Maybe the time has come to do something about it, you know? And I'm not saying to take things into your own hands necessarily. I'm saying let your faith be more than just passive. Let it be active, where you do something about it, where you stop praying maybe and get out there and do something visible, tangible, to bring the gospel to somebody that needs to hear it. Well, these four guys did. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the parallel, and I'm sure they were excited now. Here they, man, I mean, you can imagine, here's Jesus teaching, and suddenly you're, you're, you're in the room and you hear guys on the roof walking around. Suddenly you hear grass being ripped off the roof. All of a sudden the boards are being broken up. And here comes this guy being lowered down on this stretcher right down in front of Jesus. Now, that took a lot of ingenuity, a lot of determination. Jesus appreciated that. And what did he say to him? He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, <laughs> I imagine personally when Jesus said this, that these four guys were very disappointed. I imagine that they said within themselves, Lord, we didn't want you to forgive his sins. We wanted you to heal his body. See, that's really what they had brought him there for. But Jesus was taking care of the most important thing first. What's more important? A person being healed physically or saved? Jesus was dealing with the most important thing first. A person's salvation is always 
the most important thing because that affects eternity. No matter what Jesus does to your body, it's only for a time. It's temporal. Eventually, your body's going to wear out and you're going to die. Sometimes as Christians, I think we, we, we have it backwards. We pray for somebody to stop drinking, stop taking drugs, which is not a bad prayer. But even if they did stop drinking, stop taking drugs, they'd still be unsaved. If you pray for a person's salvation and they get saved, the Spirit of God comes in them, and oftentimes all those other things that had them bound are just broken and they're delivered because they're saved now. And so Jesus was more concerned about a person's eternity than about their temporal circumstances, even as God is. You'll find as Christians now, so often the Lord is, well, not so all the time, God is more concerned about our eternal good than our temporal comfort. We are just the other way around so often. I'm concerned about my temporal comfort, okay? Eternity, that's, that's too far in the future for me. I want to know, I want, you know, comfort now, see? I want to be happy now. I want uh, no problems in my life physically now. But many times God puts us through earthly discomforts and trials and adversities to give us the best eternity possible. See, he's always working for our eternal best. We're so locked into time that we want our temporal best. So Jesus was setting forth the most important thing. But I do think a good part of this was intended to begin to show everyone that Jesus Christ was claiming to be more than just another prophet in Israel. Think about it. I think he's elevating his ministry to a new level, in a sense. I think he's pulling back the curtain on his person a little farther. Hey, a lot of prophets had come down history, and the history of Israel had come down the road that had healed the sick, right? Had cast out demons, um, had even raised the dead. But Jesus wanted them to know that he was different. And he was beginning to show them this by claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. Hey, Elijah did a lot of spectacular things. He even raised the dead, but even he couldn't forgive sins. Why? Because only God can do that, which the scribes who were sitting there rightfully understood. See, it says here in verse 6, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoned in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now understand something. These guys were not just ordinary scribes. This was a delegation sent from Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin to check out Jesus Christ, no doubt. They often did this. Remember John the Baptist in the wilderness? They eventually sent some scribes out to ask him, Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Are you, are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you that prophet? No, I'm not. Who are you then? I'm one who has been sent further away for the Lord to make his path straight. But they often did this. The fact that these guys were right near Jesus in the room says to me they got there early. Okay, They had one purpose in mind, to check this guy out. They got there early, got good seats, and they were going to just dissect everything he said, everything he did, put it under a microscope, because they weren't there to learn, really, and they weren't there with an open heart, an open mind. They were there to find something they could criticize him for. Well, they, they got a beauty here. They said, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Hey, 
they were wrong on the first account, but they were right on the second account. No, this man was not speaking blasphemies, and yes, only God can forgive sins. That's why he wasn't speaking blasphemies, because he was God. They missed that point. They were correct, really. If an ordinary man would have claimed to do that, he would have been speaking blasphemies, because only, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus, again, was now publicly declaring himself to be more than just another prophet. He wanted them to know he was, he was starting to distance himself from all the other great prophets of Israel, he was starting to set himself alone, away from them, by declaring himself to be just more, much more than just a prophet. He was declaring himself now to be God. To understand the story, you've got to understand the thinking of the Jews. The Jews associated sickness with sin. They believed that if someone was sick, or paralyzed, or blind, or whatever, it was because of some sin that they had committed. And they even believed in prenatal sin. They, could believe, they believed you could sin in the womb and be born blind, or lame, or something like that. So you got to understand the Jewish mentality. In fact, the rabbis had a saying which went like this. They said, there is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. Keep that in the back of your mind. That's going to become very important because that's the very theological point that Jesus is going to use to prove everything he's just said. He's going to pick up on their own theology. Not that he agrees with it necessarily because not all sickness is a result of sin. Yes, generally speaking it is because it all goes back to the garden where man fell and sin was entered into the human race. All sickness is a result of sin in that regard. But not everything a person is going through in their own physical body uh, the sickness that they might be enduring is a result of some sin in their life. Sometimes it is. The scriptures teach that, but not always. But for the rabbis, they always associated physical sickness with sin. Remember the book of Job? Job's three friends, all the way through, are arguing with him. And the argument went something like this. Job, don't tell us you're right with God. If you were right with God, you wouldn't be sick. You must have done something. You must have sinned in some way. See, that was their logic. Remember in John chapter 9, when they were by the temple and they came across the blind man, and the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, again, in their mind, they were associating blindness, sickness, with sin. He said, neither this man nor his parents, but that God might be glorified through him. And then when the guy got healed and he received his sight, he went to tell the Pharisees and all, and they questioned him. And he kind of rebuked them because they were unwilling to accept Jesus as Messiah. And they turned on the guy. And they said, you were altogether born in sin and you're trying to teach us. What was the point? You were born blind. You were born in sin, obviously, to be born blind. See, again, associating sin or sickness with sin. Verse 8, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, so he knew their hearts, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, what is easier to say? In the scribes' minds, no doubt they were saying to themselves, Sure, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven and claim you have the authority to forgive sins. There's no way that that can be checked. There's no visible way that that can be can be demonstrated that those sins are really forgiven. There's no way we can, we can verify 
that you really have the authority to forgive sins, even though you say you do, see? In their mind, it was a lot easier to say, your sins are forgiven you. A lot harder to say, take up your bed and walk. Why? Well, from a human perspective, hey, that's easy to verify. The guy doesn't take up his bed and walk. Obviously, you're not from God, right? That's from man's perspective, but Jesus Christ was no mere man. We're talking about Jesus Christ now. What was easier for Jesus to say? Well, I personally believe it was easier for Jesus to say, take up your bed and walk, because that only took a word, you know, to be healed. It was a lot harder for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven you, because that was going to mean he would have to go to the cross and die, see? But Jesus wanted to show them that he was the Son of God and the Messiah. And so he said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes jumped on him. And Jesus said, why do you reason in your hearts this way? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a messianic term, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Do you see the beauty of this? Jesus used their own theology. Now, I'm not saying he agreed with it, but he used it. See, to back them into a corner, and they had to acknowledge. First of all, in their minds, the rabbi said, Nobody can be healed of their sicknesses until their sins are totally forgiven them. Jesus said, look, your sins are forgiven. They reasoned in their hearts saying, oh yeah, easy for you to say. There's no way we can prove that. Jesus said, oh, well now, hang on guys. I want you to know that I have the power to forgive sins. Now, to verify it, take up your bed and walk. The guy stands up, takes up his bed and walks out. <laughs> now the scribes are backed into a corner. I mean, their own theology has just told them, this man could not have been healed unless his sins were forgiven. Jesus must have the power to forgive sins. Therefore, he must be no mere man. He must be God. But did that logic lead them down that path? No, they rejected it. But that was the logical argument Jesus was presenting. See, see, they had no excuse. By their own theology, he had proved to them he was the Son of God. But see, they were unwilling to accept that. But remember, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed. See, tucked in between all the healings and the deliverances and the lame guys being made to walk and the lepers cleansed and, and uh, you know, all these other things, Mark slips in the greatest miracle, the forgiveness of sins. As one commentator said, forgiveness is the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. It brings the greatest blessing. And it has the greatest results, which are eternal. That's why it's the greatest miracle Jesus ever did to forgive. It was much harder for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven you, see. From man's perspective, it was just the other way around. But from God's perspective, it was much harder to say, your sins are forgiven you. To heal somebody, that was not, no big deal. Jesus could heal the body with a word. But to heal the spirit, that was going to take the blood of God being shed on the cross. That was a great miracle. The resurrection to follow. 
But I want you to keep these four guys in the back of your mind, okay? Because I, uh, I really love their determination. And I, I really am convicted by it. How that they didn't give up, you know, from bringing their friend uh, to Jesus. Now, J. Vernon McGee in his commentary said, For years this bothered me, he said. Because it says here that Jesus, when he saw the faith of the friends, then he healed the guy. He says, you know, that bothered me for years because it was almost as if this guy was saved through the faith of his friends. And I know that that can't be. He said, it bothered me for years until I began to really think about it. And I realized what the Lord was trying to teach here. He wasn't saved by the faith of his friends, but it was the faith of his friends that persevered and determined to bring him and lay him at Jesus' feet where he could then hear the words of Christ himself and make his own decision. And the point that McGee made was this. It's great to have a Christian mother or father or brother or sister or friend. It's great to have those people around you that have faith and pray for you. But, you know, ultimately, you can't get into heaven because of their relationship with God. You have to make your own decision, see. And these four guys, their faith broke through the barriers that were keeping this guy from Jesus. But once they broke through, they laid him at Jesus' feet. It was his responsibility then to take it from there. Thank God he did. He received the physical healing, but spiritually he was healed of his sin, see, which had paralyzed him, had rendered him incapable of helping himself in anything. And the Lord healed him. He took up his bed and he walked. The same is true with us. One's dead in trespasses and sins. We hear the word of God. We accept what Jesus is saying. And we get up and we walk now. We're no longer just floating down stream anymore with the current of the world. Now we're fighting against the current because we're walking now with Jesus. And that's a walk that goes against the flow of all those around us. So working our way through slowly, uh, taking our time, just trying to dig out some of the beautiful spiritual lessons that the Lord has put here for us. Um, it just keeps getting better and better. The Gospel of Mark just keeps getting better and better. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, not only for the obvious and practical stories that we see here, those that were physically diseased being cleansed and the lepers being or the uh, lame being made to walk and demon possessed being delivered but we see lord the spiritual lessons you're trying to teach us too how that the world has been stricken with a horrible hideous loathsome disease called sin that is causing people to be walking corpses. They don't even realize they're dead in trespasses and sins. They're totally insensitive to the touch of the Spirit, totally oblivious to how sin is eating away at their lives and destroying them slowly and imperceptibly. And yet, Lord, when you begin to work in a person's heart and they begin to see that there is a, someone out there who can heal them, his name is Jesus. They come, sometimes not sure that you're willing, but your word is confirmed to our hearts that you're always willing and you're able. And so, Lord, help us 
by our love to show the spiritual lepers around us that there is hope, that Jesus can heal them. And help us, Lord, not to stand afar off, but to be like you, Lord, to touch, to come in contact with, to not be afraid to, uh, to touch those around us who are living in sin. Sometimes we want to stand afar off and kind of yell the gospel over a distance to them. But Lord, you went ahead and you got close to people and you touched them and you had compassion on them. Lord, help us as your servants, as your, as your people to do the same. People need to be loved. They need to know someone loves them. Help us to be those that will touch, hug, pray for, and lead people to you. Lord, we just thank you now and pray you would really burn these lessons into our hearts this week. Help the, us to begin to apply them into our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.